have a news item that we have to talk about. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you've seen Golden Globes. Could it be over? Could this finally be the end of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association? Oh, God. Um, I'm going to read the headline here. Um, controversy surrounding the Hollywood Foreign Press. NBC released a statement today. We continue to believe that the HFPA is committed to meaningful reform. However, change of this magnitude takes time and work, and we feel strongly that the HFPA needs time to do it right. <laughs> um, hopefully we can air again in 2023. Um, so the 90-ish member organization is also saying that they don't have uh, enough time to diversify <laughs> which is interesting amazing i think uh i think our guest has arrived oh our guest has arrived sorry i'm here hi what are you what are y'all talking about oh perfect timing we're talking about the end of the hollywood foreign press association <laughs> cool uh, yeah i i saw that happened i don't really know uh the consequences for cinema i'm sure they'll be enormous <laughs> Yeah. This is a big blow. Dire. Yeah, they got in trouble apparently for flying people out to the set of Emily in Paris. <laughs> I hope that paid off for the Emily in Paris's awards prospects. That's wait, the quote is NBC doesn't see right now a comprehensive plan to that would include doubling the membership. They we just don't have we don't have the room right now. <laughs> Um, well, good. I hope they get a new crop of shit pickers over there. So. <laughs> oh, God. How's everything going on at Chicago Film Society? Oh, things are going great. Um, so, uh, we're doing this Metrograph partnership right now, uh, the Leader Ladies screening series, which, um, in the past, everything we've done with our programming has been exclusively analog film. So it's kind of funny to be doing, a virtual cinema since <laughs> i think in general we're all extremely opposed to the idea that like it's um you know an equivalent experience watching something at home on your computer versus watching something in a theater on film uh but i don't know i feel like it's given us a chance to talk about what we're missing right now and uh, talk about why uh showing things online sucks ass and why showing things in a theater on film is great um yeah we're also i'm um we're currently putting together the the third issue of our zine i don't know if y'all have checked that out uh I know, integrating zine, yes. it's very cool oh, thanks um yeah so we 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 have all the writing done for it uh just laying it out currently so hopefully that'll be ready by uh end of this month hey great uh, news love that yeah. Love that. If there's one film group out here that a zine I would actually read from, it's you guys. So. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Sam. I mean, yeah. you know, end endless of your screenings that I have uh, cherished, but I still got to say it comes up often and I think about OC and Stigs all the time. Oh, yeah. It's like my <laughs> I never thought movie. I'd get the chance to see it on film ever, ever, ever. And I remember when yeah. Julian told me that was coming. Lost my mind. I, um, it's funny, the distributor said something to the effect of that is the most people who have ever sat in a room and watched OC and Sticks at the same time ever. Yeah. Um, we love it. 
uh, yeah, I don't know. I was I was personally extremely worried about that screening because I was the only person who had seen the film, and I, I love it. It's like one of my favorite Altmans. It's great, like so um, just honest to like how how awful and destitute this country is, and <laughs> how making uh, living here makes everybody fucking crazy. Um, yeah, it's funny. I know I, I was expecting people to just like be really mad at me after <laughs> after I introduced it, but like some freaks just like came up and like someone gave me a hug afterwards for like <laughs> subjecting the public to that. I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm, 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 it's it's kind of astonishing to me that that people that there are a lot of people out there actually who who uh, adore that movie as much as I do. Yeah, I, I found know, myself yeah. this year thinking of that. And um, we, weirdly, I would I rewatched a couple times that and Little Murders. That was oh, like the yeah. only thing this last year that I could like just gave me some sort of cathartic release. <laughs> yeah, both extremely ugly, uh, yeah. brutal movies. Yep. Uh, yeah, <laughs> excellent. But excellent, absolutely. Okay. So, other than the zine. Is there any other things going on at the Film Society right now that you can talk about? Yeah, um, so we have a few, I don't know, we're not, it's, it's, we want to get back to screening soon, hopefully. Um, we don't have anything, like, concrete that we can announce. There's a few things in the works, um, and I don't know, we're hoping before the end of the year we can, we can get some stuff on screen for people. Um, we got a couple of preservation projects uh, coming up. Um, we're in the midst of uh, of uh, doing um, Edward Owen's filmography. I don't know if you all know him. He's a queer black teenage filmmaker from the South side of Chicago, whose work is like finally being seen by people in these like digital scans that are better than nothing, but um, you know, I when I was like made aware of these films, like, oh, these look beautiful. I'd love to see them on a film, and then find, come to find out, like, there's like one circulation print of each that uh, the filmmakers co-op is not lending out. So yeah, we're working on new prints of those. Um, in after we got this great grant to uh, the Avant-Garde Masters grant to to put these preservations together, a bunch of his film elements were discovered in like a storage locker that went to a thrift store um so like now we actually have his like camera originals and oh holy uh, shit. a bunch of other other stuff that we can use for these preservations so it's not Huge. just like taking the only prints that are out there and making new copies of it but we can do something like real preservation work on them um wow that's incredible. Uh, that's massive that's big yeah, yeah. That's a huge deal. Yeah, some I don't know what we got. I don't know. We have some other ones where there's some that we can't like. We haven't fully secured funding for that. Uh, uh, hopefully, we can announce soon. Um, yeah. If you want to announce them, we'll beep them out. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. It's it's hard to 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 like be a film organization right now because it's a lot of it feels like treading water you know it's like finding the things that we can we can get people excited about in the meantime while we're not screening films um and not doing like virtual programming outside of this this wonderful series that we're doing right now with metrograph mm-hmm. um, how did you guys get involved with the metrograph to do that series uh, so they, they reached out to us. Uh, my my colleague Rebecca Lyon runs um, 
this uh, one of our side projects, the Leader Ladies Project, where um, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I guess it would it would do well to explain what a leader lady is. But um, at the the head of every um, film print that comes from a lab, there's usually an image that's used for like color timing purposes and other like technical purposes by labs, which uh, have historically been called China girls. Um, we we decided on the term leader lady because it seems less problematic and especially because most of the women uh, in these pictures are white. Mm -hmm. um, but for a long time, these were things that were like basically only seen by projectionists. Um, you know, when you're inspecting a print, like you see it at the head of the print and it's just a single frame uh, of uh, image of a woman and then you just, uh, and then it moves on. Um, and that, that, that kind of thing is like, it's not the movie, it's the audience isn't supposed to see it. So it's this sort of like, almost like clandestine image that, that uh, projectionists were aware of. And each print based on the lab that it came from has like a different image at the head usually. So historically, like, you know, projection booths have been largely male uh, and it was like dudes just like cutting out these these images of women and like sticking them around and keeping them in envelopes and things but um in so uh i guess like in in recent years uh as, as things have sort of like opened up like people have wanted to kind of like share these things you know it's not like film prints like most people don't have access to them like in their day-to-day -day lives like people aren't watching stuff on film as frequently so to be able to share this like weird artifact that is like still in use like they're still on brand new film prints um it, it seems like there's like now this kind of like interest in, in what these like bizarre often like really bizarre images are um so yeah my colleagues have been uh before even i was like a part of the film society were like collecting these images of of women at the heads of film prints and like posting them online and Kind of sharing like some of the strangest and coolest ones that they've found so long long way around uh, metrograph was aware of of this like project to share these images online and and contacted us about uh putting together a screening series based around this project um so not i mean it's it's there aren't like there's a few films that that um that actually feature these images in them, but it's it's kind of hard to like put together a bunch of films that like all like have leader ladies as a, a formal element. Um, so we've kind of expanded the like idea to just be about kind of film projection in general and like film materiality in general and use this particular frame as like a jumping off point. Um, so yeah, like uh, we have two shorts programs which are mostly avant-garde shorts and like that's really where you see the most like leader ladies in films. Although the film that I introduced for the program and, and wrote the capsule description for Death Proof is like one of like two or three narrative films that like actually have this image as part of it. Um, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but it actively incorporates it, you know. Yeah, and I know, movie. I know that's, I know that's a film also that both y'all are are into for probably. Oh, yeah. Similar reasons to us, just in how term, like in terms of like what it is doing with like narrative as a form and like relating that back to like, I don't know, filmmaking uh, as a technique, but through the the lens of the sort of like shit. I don't know. <laughs> I feel I feel like it's it's a, it's a thing with like genre film people now where like it's that's where I'm seeing a lot of like 
the 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 like uh format like partisanship i guess um which is like funny to me because like those are the prints that are out there that are like the shittiest usually um (laughs) and people people care the most about seeing those kinds of films on film regardless of the fact that like these things look like they're decaying before your eyes (laughs) that's definitely Uh, my experience like uh showing movies and you know in denver and in los angeles and even in chicago where, you know, like I there was one time I put together like a huge uh, Visconti series and we, you know, it was part of a print tour, essentially. And uh, so we're flying in these prints from Italy and very exciting stuff, you know, but I get, you know, maybe 40 to 60 people per screening for that. And then, you know, during the same week that we're showing those, uh, one of the other programmers at the Egyptian theater puts together a triple feature of god what was it maniac evil dead and cannibal holocaust all on film and you know that sells out in a couple hours <laughs> yeah nobody yep. wants you know, to see awesome. yep. fascists have sex with their moms will <laughs> they want they want the good stuff <laughs> yeah. yep well that's interesting with death proof because yeah like you're saying i mean this is like a real meta kind of use of all the things you're talking about i mean the end of the movie they you're talking specifically of the women that would hold the color timing cards correct yeah yeah it's usually it's an image i mean there's a few like kind of standardized ones that people i know are super familiar with but it's usually an image of like a woman usually a white woman because that's like the the skin tone that the film prints are usually timed to um looking directly into the camera uh color bars either like holding them or like framing them and usually wearing some kind of crazy colored shirt with a bizarre pattern on it which i uh i know like a couple apps are also getting away from just even using people so like photochem who's like one of the two big labs in, in the u.s is like currently using like a, an iguana for their like instead of a person um <laughs> very uh which we, we have, we're, we're gonna put up if people missed our first shorts program, there's an extensive uh, panel with my colleagues, Julian Antos and Rebecca Lyon and, and uh, one of the lab techs from, from Photochem um, where he, the Photochem tech talks extensively about uh, a particular gray patch on the iguana and why like, that's like the perfect like thing to color time to. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, the other big lab in the U.S., Color Lab, is, is using a dog wearing a tie. Uh, also. also cool. Yeah. So I don't know. There's there's now like with new prints this like push away from using human figures, but um, but yeah, that's that's the the image, the classic image, which I think now people are like somewhat aware that it's like a film, something with film. You know, people have like seen it, but. But yeah, that the end credit scene sequence and, and death proof is like I think one of at least for me it was like one of the first places I remember being exposed to these kinds of images. I'd never yeah. touched a film print before that. And, and um, well, let's talk a little bit about the movie Death Proof. Uh, this is a movie by Quentin Tarantino. It was released as part of a double feature with uh, Planet Terror. It was called Grindhouse. Didn't turn out so well for an actually great idea. We did not get more of these movies. Um, but Death Proof was the second bill on this uh, sort of fictional or actually real double feature. Um, do you, did either of you see the actual Grindhouse when it came out in theaters? First run in the multiplex. Yep. Okay. <laughs> stupid question. Of course we all saw that. Cameron, what were your, I don't know, what were your memories of uh, 
seen that. Yeah. So, I mean, I was, God, I guess I was like 20 when that came out and which is like the age for, I don't know, to be like a, a Quentin Tarantino fan, super fan, I suppose. Um, and I was very excited. Uh, I, I, I enjoyed it greatly. Um, it's, it's funny that like, it felt, I guess because like at that point I was like also like sort of getting into like a lot of criticism around like art house cinema which like I, I grew up in Tampa Florida we didn't have art house cinema in Tampa Florida like so like reading ostensibly like highbrow critics who like are actually really into this like weird Tarantino film and like going to see it and enjoying it greatly um and then I guess finding out like later on that it's considered bad or like a flop or uh that i don't know it's his worst film which i greatly disagree with um oh yeah i think we all greatly disagree with that <laughs> yeah. um yeah i don't know i i it's it's also strange to like be in a place where there isn't either like repertory cinema or like art cinema where like you go to a multiplex to see something that's like engaging so consciously with like the material um like of you know celluloid material that you're watching like there's like fake missing reels and you know fake fake film scratches through both the... i don't i don't remember if there's like i mean i guess there would be like real changeover cues in that because it's an actual print but like um i'm trying to remember if there's like what specifically in that cut if there's like anything like related to like projection labor besides i guess the missing reel card God, I'm trying to remember now. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll remember it in a second. Yeah. But, but I don't know. It's just, it's funny to be like in a multiplex where there's, at that time, it's like a platter system where there's like one guy like bouncing between 20 theaters, just making sure nothing's getting stuck. Um, and like you have all these like sort of referential points to like there being somebody in the booth. It's like, not really <laughs> like somebody actually up there. Like it's, you know, you're a step away from, like pure digital where there's like no projection labor whatsoever but even at that point it's like they're really starting to phase out like the guy up there doing all the work mm-hmm. and to have something be like so consciously like pointing to that like i think it opens up a lot of like avenues for inquiry i guess um yeah, yeah. which we'll we're definitely going to get into in a second here will did, were you able to see this in your small small town it was well this came out i was also around 20 19 or 20 whatever i'd have to look at the year but somewhere in there so i was in college at the point also in a tiny town but in southern iowa um but we would drive to des moines to see movies and i remember you know when this got announced i was super pumped of course and i was making lots of the people who lived in the same dorm as me uh watch lots of these you know car movies and roughies and shit to get ready um which resulted in a lot of people bailing on the screening yeah. <laughs> i will say um yeah <laughs> but you know uh but anyway uh they i remember them as you know it was announced and it was a big deal and then ticket sales weren't happening and i remember distinctly that being a thing and as a result what was going to be a much longer run and easier to see got quickly reduced to a couple screenings in Des Moines. And one of them was like a midnight screening on the, I believe it was like the Thursday before it would come out. And that's what we went to. And so I remember being very excited. Uh, The people that I was with, both of them, it was three of us, 
because uh, everyone else bailed. Uh, but they both not not necessarily big film people and definitely hadn't worked with you know film prints or anything. They both thought that the uh, actual movie had fucked up when it does do. <laughs> When it does do the melt moment, uh, one of them jumped up and was like, I've got to go tell them. And I was like, I'm, it's definitely part of the movie. <laughs> but, you know, but I remember I remember having a blast. Um, I remember like Rodriguez at the time I was definitely heading downwards on. I really loved a lot of his stuff um, in, uh, you know, junior high and high school. And I still I still hold a, an affinity for quite a few of his movies, but I was definitely on the downward path and I thought his half was fun. Um, I was happy to see, uh, I'm always excited for dick mutilation in movies. So when we get that great, like dick melt drop, I was excited about that. But mostly I was just waiting for death proof and I lost my mind after it ended and immediately became my favorite of his movies, um, that he had made up to that point and continues to be still, you know, where we're at now. So it was a it was a great time. I remember very exciting getting out of the theater at like three o'clock or whatever it was. Uh, it was a blast. Oh yeah, yeah. Boy, I missed that. Yep. I it came at a perfect time in my life because I was also about twenty, and my friends and I would go to this theater in Kansas City called the Screenland, which I'm not sure is still there, but like most of the Kansas City theaters are just going away. Although I have, I know you were worried, Will, about the Tivoli. The Tivoli has apparently reopened inside of the Nelson Atkins Museum. Hey, we're still alive. I'm just we'll so glad to be there. Don't have the great theater anymore with the big devil probably poster, but yep. it has it the has lived for alive. now. Good. But um, anyway, the Screenland would do it, and it was right around this time before it came out, they would do these double features of like old exploitation movies. So like we would see everything from like it's hard to even remember because we'd probably get like so baked in the car before we go in but it'd be like you know like lady terminator to uh like demons so you know they would have prints of all these exploitation movies that was where i first saw fulci and fell in love with the psychic and uh (laughs) zombie and it was like mind-blowing so we were like really primed at the time for this and then yeah it came out and i remember my friends really gravitating towards uh the Robert Rodriguez section, but it was a big debate in the car back because I kept, yeah, I kept shaking my head like, no, I think we just saw Quentin Tarantino's best movie. <laughs> I was like, there's just so much going on there. And, you know, it took me a while to like really like in my head at that time, like realize what made that movie so special. But it's, um, I think it's one that has endured better than some of his earlier films. And I think it deepens. And it's interesting to talk about this movie in a year where we were, uh, you know, just blessed with uh, David Fincher's Mank, (laughs) which just is funny when you think about the two, because Mank incorporates all these like scratches and audio issues. And it's like, look, it's like an old movie. This is great. This is so cool. And, you know, nothing could have just, just, you know, put me off more watching that movie than all that crap that was in it. And the changes? Yeah, it's just like, this is so dumb, man. You can do World War Z too, please. But um, then I think of a movie like Death Proof where it, the narrative, the whole point of telling it completely is dependent on 
the first part of the movie. So for people who don't remember the movie, it kind of, there's two stories, basically. There's, it follows a couple of girls at the beginning of the movie who um, end up falling prey to the, uh, the serial killer played by Kurt Russell. And then another movie starts. And I do remember as a, when I first saw it, and I couldn't recall that they had, that the, the, the women had changed. Like, it almost seemed like it was the same characters from the first story. And it took me a while. I was like, oh, yeah, wait, that wasn't the same people. <laughs> but to that point, there is this sort of mirroring. And it, I guess it's probably the first Tarantino movie that I think takes the idea of um, you can't actually really do things um, that probably need to get justly done in this world, like kill Hitler, stop a bunch of, um, you know, Southern plantation races, and you can't like save Sharon Tate. But then with Death Proof, it's almost like the second story, which takes place after the women are murdered, is solely there to be some sort of this like ghostly vengeance. It's like uh, the movie suddenly drops its all of its like real changes and all of its scratching. It becomes a good looking movie for all, you know. And it's it's, it's something I think about with this movie like quite often. Yeah, I I mean I, I guess I I never like that particular read like didn't occur to me. But I think I guess what that opens up for me then is like the project the grindhouse project this idea that like you can take a popular cinema that is like decades past like when it was viable and try to you know in the multiplex era like revive a genre like an independent genre cinema which is like well past its heyday and which is remembered fondly but like infrastructurally impossible to like ever return to to try to then like revive that within like the american popular cinema as it is now when like you know 2007 is that, that's the dark knight was that the year that came out the year, <laughs> year before they came out i mean it's like after batman begins and after like the spider-man yeah. movies and as like ip is like starting to become become like the arbiter of of what is like possible in american like popular cinema like to then try to do something that is like formally and narratively inventive but like also provides these like prurient thrills which like cinema can provide better than any other medium and which have like basically become like evacuated from filmmaking as an art uh i I think that to me and also it's like it's like real life failure uh to actually like enact that kind of change i don't I, i guess that's where i see that fantasy um, yeah, I I would agree. I think it does operate on that level too. It's there's that level of impossibility, this like yearning yeah. to change things, to rectify things. And um, as much as I've like kind of moved away from like a certain period of Tarantino's work, Tarantino's later work has spoken to me way more mm-hmm. over the years. And I, I think Death Proof is the one where he really, I know he, I know he is not a fan of it because it failed, and I'm sure he like feels pretty hurt over like such a gigantic, really cool prospect just failing. But. Oh, I think one of the things that makes it so special, like, as I said, I loved it at the gate for sure, but I revisit this one pretty often. Um, And I think why I was trying to think through it before we talked actually what it is. And it's, 
for me, like obviously his movies are always, you know, full of references, whether you want to call it homage or ripoff or whatever, pastiche. Um, obviously all his stuff is full of that. And that's largely a lot of the point. Um, but I think something, like, even though I like the Kill Bill movies, um, I think often when I revisit those in my head, I'm like, why am I not just watching Lady Snowblood and the Blood Spattered Bride? You know, like I have that moment. This one never once does that happen. Um, all of the references, whether they're direct or subtle or whatever, they truly, I think, enhance the universe and the story. Um, like in particular, I often, I always think about the the uh, bird with the crystal plumage moment with Kurt Russell with his camera, you know, and like that, I actually did last time I watched these, I, I double featured them because I was just thinking about that moment, you know, and I think the more you dive into each of those reference moments, the more it really enhances things, even his like, you know, the Sam Peckinpah movies that he chooses to put in here, like, like Convoy and Junior Bonner, you know, um, I think each one of his reference points greatly enhances what is happening and what we're talking about. And I also think, again, with that bird with the crystal plumage moment, I think he's doing something that he really hadn't done before uh, in the way that he is calling attention to how we are watching this and how we watch these kinds of movies, what we expect from them, what we get mad when we don't get from them, you know? Um, and because I remember at the time, a lot of my friends, when they saw it, they were just fucking bored, right? They were like, they just talk, man. Like I wanted to see, you know, the car moment, of course, they're like, that was sick when the tire, like, you know, goes through the head. Like that's what they were talking about. And they thought the rest was boring. Um, but to me, that's what's so interesting here is I, I think if you do want to do it and you do want to take the time and you really pick through this thing, um, it is the first time in my opinion that Tarantino truly uh, like created a well-rounded piece with a lot to say uh that continues to keep giving and i think his other movies have those moments but again this time all of the homage only really just bolsters the whole experience um yeah. it makes it really special and it, it just feels so genuine too in a way that i think is unique to this one um there's no not no. There's very little snark that I think I personally often associate with Tarantino movies. Um, it doesn't feel sneering. It doesn't feel holier than thou, whether you get the references or not. But if you do get them, it's that kind of wonderful thing where it's like, you know, meeting a new friend on a on a patio outside of a movie theater or something who wants to obsessively talk about 10 seconds of a movie. Like it, <laughs> I think it recreates that feeling really nicely. Um, and yeah, at the end of the day, it truly is, a, a, I think, a genuine love letter um, to not just Zoe Bell, uh, but to, you know, stunt women and the, the women who often starred in these movies and what they were put through and why they were put through that and all this shit. I don't know. I think it's just a really dense, beautiful movie um, yeah. that, yeah, only gets better with age. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I do think that, like, there's, yeah, there's just a lot to unravel with that movie. And what you're saying about the, the the movie references in there i mean i having rewatched it a couple months ago totally forgot that you know they throw the pino Dinaggio blowout score in there but it just it's like it, it it informs what's going on in a character who's not giving any thought inner thoughts and you just you just suddenly it's like just those little piano keys it was just such infinite sadness came over me yeah. and um looking at the, the the first car accident again you know where he 
collides with the women. I mean, I, I don't know how many cuts were made during that shot, but it's astounding. It reminded me of the, the elevator scene in Dress to Kill because he is just throwing all these different elements in there. He's got the the character like in uh, Carpenter's Prince of Darkness at the end where they hop, they do the reverse hop through the mirror. Yes, yeah. He has the woman come through the window like that and just slowing it down. I had to do it this time like a fucking freak, but <laughs> I just had to see it. And I was like, oh my God, like this is, yeah, I think it's, it's so lovingly constructed and maybe it's because he had such a small budget for this one. I think he was able to get away with a lot more, you know, I do always wonder about how when the second story starts, it's black and white. And it's not until it seems like the main character refuses to fall victim to the Kurt Russell character. Suddenly everything pops into color. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I don't know. We, we don't need to go too deep in the movie because people should just rewatch it. But <laughs> hopefully there's a, we've given you enough to chew on there. Yeah. A last tidbit. The last time I watched this, uh, I was inspired by was when I was going through all of uh, Roberta and Michael Finlay's early roughies before they made the switch to porn. Um, and I was uh, rewatching all the ones I could get my hand on. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but um, Janie uh, from 1970, definitely my favorite of their early roughies. And this one definitely starts to flirt with we're getting pretty soft core-ish um, mm-hmm. for sure. But this movie loosely uh, is about um, this woman who, and basically all we get, Roberta Finlay does the voiceover narration. And if you've heard her talk, her voice can be just delightfully brash. And she's uh, a really harsh, (laughs) uh, wonderfully harsh New York accent. So we get her voiceover narration in this young girl's head who is searching for daddy, um, like hitchhiking across the country. And basically it's just her picking up these dudes and killing them. And then she masturbates, right? Like, that's how she get her, gets her kicks. And watching that movie, I thought about Crash, of course, Cronenberg's Crash. And then I thought about Death Proof and the way he does the sexuality in it, um, which I think is also very unique to this one in a Tarantino movie. Because from my view, I think his movies can be pretty sexless in a lot of ways, um, you know, outside of the feet thing, which we don't need to do, but <laughs> <laughs> but I think his movies don't have a lot about or are not all that concerned with or interested in sexuality very often, but the way that the women in Death Proof um, have their moments of uh, sexual pleasure, whether it's, you know, like fucking with these dudes or, or, you know, getting out of like escaping from Kurt Russell or whatever, I, I thought there was a lot of connection between the roughies, I think, and some of these uh, female characters in those movies, obviously taken a lot more extreme, but I don't know. Yeah. Like the, the sexual aspect of death proof, I think is really interesting too. That's oh, totally there. And that last car, that car chase, which is also like, I don't understand. I mean, you say like people finding this film boring. It's oh. like, that's some of the wildest like stunt work I've seen Ever. in any film. <laughs> yeah. But, like, especially when you look at the last 20 years of american action cinema it's just like what the fuck like this is i mean it's so simple but it's so much more impressive to like see a human being like in that much danger like Uh on screen um (laughs) but i mean it's it's in that scene too though like what you're talking about with like the sexuality where it's just like it's so like it's so concerned with like 
both Zoe Bell's body and with Kurt Russell's body and like that reversal of like penetration. It's like, yeah. I don't know. I mean, well, the girls I, I are yelling really like, like, you're going to fucking take it. Yeah. Yeah. Here <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 I don't know. It's, it's maybe like weaning a little too much into like men, women and chainsaws style yeah. psychoanalyzing, but it's also, I don't know. It's all there. Like, <laughs> yeah. That's what's good about this is it's all there. It's, you don't feel like it's just over ripening before your eyes. You're just like, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm 100% on board with this. When they're like, just go fucking kick this guy's ass. <laughs> she's like, yeah, you're going to take it in the ass. It's like, oh, I'm feeling what they're feeling. Yep. This seems great. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's how, it should. Also, like, how pathetic Kurt Russell's character is and his demise is just, yeah. oh my God so titillating i think in the best way and again like harkens back to the ruffies where the the ones where that does happen where these women are taking down these men the men are always like sniveling pathetic just like you know fucking waste of space right and like i love that kurt russell (laughs) just descends into this like sniveling whining mess losing all of his swagger like all of his confidence oh yeah i mean i guess i mean it's that's like going back to like the reference points I, I don't think i saw any russ meyer stuff until like after that but it all like made sense to me oh, yeah. like, <laughs> like oh this is this is what he's talking about these are like this is the masculine archetype he's working with like, yeah <laughs> these powerful gigantic women like <laughs> destroying pathetic men yeah and not only did the movie really like fail I don't even recall there being like a Blu-ray for a long time. They had that first one. Yeah, the director's yeah. cut ones. Right. Like, was released there's like two separate, two separate ones. And then yeah. they did the I think they did the whole thing later on. Which is now the 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 Blu-ray that did the whole thing is now very sought after in the movie nerd collecting realm going for like yeah. 80, 90 bucks to get that one because it's uh out of print, I guess. Um I do suspect that we're that arrow is going to do all of them because we do you know we know they're planning on doing um django but i do suspect arrow has that in the works and that we might you know finally get the whole bloody affair and all that stuff but i don't know we'll see yeah that would be cool because i just think i have a french blu-ray of it (laughs) thing that we like to do i think is always fun we've been asking guests uh you know because of course People like us watch movies a lot all the time anyway, but this last year has been insane. And so I think, you know, uh, watching even more stuff, just, you know, is there anything you've watched, whether recently or in the last year that you hadn't seen before that really, you know, tickled your fancy, lit your fire, whatever it may be that you, you know, want to share with people? Yeah. um, So I guess the last thing I've, I've just been like watching a lot of like avant-garde shorts programs at home because it's my attention span for a feature is like so low these days that if it's not i mean i can watch i was watching a lot of wuxia stuff last year which was like really hitting the spot um but i've I've run out of those so now i'm like just watching these experimental shorts programs as they pop up and uh the, the most recent one i saw that like really blew my mind was i saw um martin arnold's first short which i'd never seen before which has some french title that i'm not recalling um uh from 1989 but it's it's like an 18 second segment of uh uh like classic hollywood film some like nothing classic hollywood film that he just like 
protracts to like a full 16 minutes just by like going back and forth like frame by frame and it's and the, the entire time there's just like this like industrial pulse on the soundtracks so it's like and like you see these like two performers just kind of like rocking back and forth and like I mean the first like two minutes is just a woman like tapping her finger and then like her husband comes in and like flicks the lights on and off like and it's so anxiety inducing and then but also like funny in spots because it's like oh now it looks like he's like humping the back of her head and like it's just all the like the stupid things you can do by like moving this like really short sequence like back and forth um until the point that it just like drives you crazy watching it and then he just like cuts it um but it's on youtube Incredible. if you just search martin arnold 1989 all right whatever french title comes up will pop up got my night planned <laughs> watch that song as well that sounds very interesting well john you got any any, any you watched recently you want to toss out at the end here well i mean as we're gonna find out with uh we've, we've been sitting through a lot of uh the American Pie series Ooh. lately. Thank God we've come to the end. <laughs> I have I have been trying not to deviate from that completely smooth brain mindset of just <laughs> sitting through that because it was like if I leave this for a second, I'm not going to want to do the episode. Yeah. So I, you know, I feel like we've mostly road trip. Um, Tom Katz outside of the American Pie series, just trying to keep that chugging along in my head. Um, yeah, and then made the mistake of picking up Don DeLillo's Libra <laughs> to actually finish it. And then came time to do the episode and was like, I don't think I want to do this now. So I've been paralleling between conspiracy brain mindset and, um, you know, just boobs and <laughs> bodily fluids. It's just going crazy. Will's probably had it the roughest because Will was sent out on a special fact-finding mission to uh, investigate the uh, straight-to-DVD American Pie series. Yep, it was a a particular hellscape with some positive surprises along the way, but uh, I will say the the most difficult thing, it made me, in a bad way, harken back to my uh, days of, you know, woes with too much substance abuse, where you... um, get to a point of where you're not sleeping and you're just high most of the time. And so it gets really hard to tell what's real and what's not watching these American pie movies recreated that for me being the unfortunate deep dive segment. Um, but there were a couple of these like more horrific and unbelievable moments that I had to run back to make sure I wasn't just creating this out of whatever was happening to my brain. So, you know, um, yeah, that was wild. But I will say the one thing that kept me alive, because I had to, I was going to do what I normally do and just slam it and just do them all back to back to back to back to back. But as the darkness settled in, I was like, you got to take care of yourself, dude. So I did throw in, we're going to do a Terrence Fisher episode coming up. And so I'm filling in the blanks. And I did watch uh, the one he did with, um, uh, Noel Coward, who also stars in it, The Astonished Heart. And that oh, blew yeah. my mind. Um, that's a beautiful film. If you if you like movies about uh, relationships falling apart and the fallout from that, can't get much better. Good shit. Yeah. So, that, so shout out to Noel Coward for keeping me alive while I dealt with shit like the fucking Book of Love and Beta House presented by American Pie. <laughs> 
Yeah, Will has the Videodrome cancer spore growing in his brain right now. <laughs> um, I, I actually, now I'm remembering, I did watch one to break it up because it felt appropriate. And that was, um, I don't know if anyone's seen this. Uh, it was Lucio Fulci's 1972, uh, The Eroticist, or better known as The Senator Likes Butts. I still have it. I still have it. <laughs> and it's, yeah, it's about a, I think he's like the head of like the Christian Democrats in Italy at the time. So a very corrupt system. And he, uh, it's a surprisingly taut little satire. I was, I thought it was just going to be some dumb Italian sex comedy that I could completely check out of, but weirdly enough, I mean, you can't discount the guy, but it's a, it was a pretty stacked little funny piece. Yeah. This leader, he's, I think he's about to become the prime minister of Italy, but he has a problem and that's, he can't help but grab ass whenever it walks by. Wow. And um, not as mean-spirited as I was thinking it was going to be. It was just, it was it totally, it's, I, I can't say I'd recommend it, but it was about a very funny little satire coming out of uh, Italy at the time. But I don't know, that, that fit in with American Pie presents, you know, band camp or whatever. So, um, uh, yeah, that fits in. That's the uh, maybe that's the lineage of how the fucking Stifler clan came to be, um, which is the the strongest uh, through line of the whole series is that there's always a fucking Stifler. <laughs> Even in Girls Rules, we finally get a we finally get a uh, we get Stephanie Stifler who continues the legacy of all those wonderful things you remember about Sean William Scott from the first two. Oh, like Stephanie. Did he disappear after the second one? I've 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 yes. only seen the first one. He well, he shows up in American Wedding. He actually yeah. becomes, I think, the star of American Wedding, which directed by Bob Dylan's son, by the way. <laughs> Jacob Dylan. No, 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 no. That would be sick if Jacob Dylan did it. <laughs> no, it's Jesse Dylan, the other the the mutant son of Bob Dylan. <laughs> The Wallflowers present American Pie presents American Wedding is the full title. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but Stifler doesn't show back up, I think, until American Reunion. But I only got through about half of American Reunion and just bailed. But and it's never in any of the direct-to-video ones. It starts with his little brother, who we do meet in the first two movies. Not the same actor, unfortunately, but it's his little brother and then his cousin and then another cousin and then another cousin that everyone's ashamed as a virgin in high school and then another cousin and then we get to stephanie stifler and netflix's 2020 hit girls rules <laughs> i'm know. starting to believe now that i've like been reading libra that the stifler was a psyop by the cia <laughs> put into american cinemas to just turn men into absolute beasts of uh, unconsensual sex and just awfulness but the way that it took hold in the minds of a lot of men in this country i can only point to the work of the cia there but that's for another episode never never again will we talk about these movies i can put them to rest however long i have left on this earth uh i will never fucking watch an american pie movie again but you know, on that note, check out Death Proof. <laughs> check out Death Proof. Check out Death Proof. Check out um, Cameron introing the movie at the Metrograph's website this weekend, right? Yeah, Saturday. I think this one. Saturday. And that's the 18th. Sounds right. 
Okay. Well, it'll be up before <laughs> that. It's on. It's gonna. It's on demand for a few days. So if you miss it on the day it initially airs, I think you got two days to to make up. So sometime between the seventeenth and the nineteenth, you should okay. be good. Okay. Cool. One of, the, one of those days will be well, at least Check it out over the weekend. People probably need to rewatch Death Proof, so you should absolutely go do this. I was going to say, if you don't know before, if you didn't know before this, Chicago Film Society, they do amazing work, showed like truly, truly incredible things, um, and we'll be back in theater soon. Thank God. Um, but, you know, check out the zine. And all yeah. sorts of things. Check out the zine. We love you guys. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on.